Psalm chapter 11. Psalm 11. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't want to have one that you can call yours, uh, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but the top reason of all the good things that He's given us the Bible for is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. Uh, and so if the Scriptures are what He uses to do that in you, um, then you need to be chasing after Him in the Scriptures. And so if you don't have a copy of your own, take that physical one home, and it'll be a, a pretty good week for us. Uh, so we've got a little bit of a gap, just a little bit of a gap uh, between the end of our James series, which ended a couple of weeks ago, and the beginning of September. And September, you know, you kind of know how the calendar works. Uh, September is just like a good season to be starting new things. Kids are going back to school, all that kind of stuff. So that means that we've got like a hole in our preaching calendar. All right, we've got like these few weeks in here uh, through the end of July and then all of August um, that we need to fill. And if you've been around for any length of time around here, then you know that the last few years uh, we have picked up this special effort uh, to slowly work our way through the Psalms, all 150 of the Psalms, uh, whenever we have these kind of holes. And so we'll just knock a few off every time we, we have an opportunity. And so it's our hope to eventually cover all 150 of them but we still have like 125 to go, all right? <laughs> so, like, at the pace we're moving, like, if I'm doing my math right, that's another 12 and a half years, all right? Um, if you're interested in seeing the end of this thing, what that tells me is that you need to eat your Wheaties and ask Jesus not to come back until at least the year 2036, all right? Um, now, for those of you who haven't, or who, who haven't been around as we've kind of been walking through this together, the Psalms as a collection, just the entire psalms as a whole, uh, they're an interesting thing to try to preach through. One, because they're, every chapter is kind of a standalone thing, or at least most of them are a standalone thing. Some of them are linked together, but most of them aren't. And I tend uh, to be a type of person, personality-wise, uh, that doesn't sit well with the psalms. I'm usually a little uncomfortable with them, to be honest. I, I tend to be the more cerebral type. Maybe you're like that, too. Uh, may, uh, maybe you're like me, maybe you're not. But I prefer a logical flow of thought all right, followed by a very, very clear call to action. And that's just how I'm wired. And any kind of nebulous, well, here's what I'm feeling right now, drives me insane. All right? I don't like that. And so I have to discipline myself to lean into the Psalms. Maybe you do too. All right? But the Psalms rarely care about trying to give a logical pathway to its readers. It's not what it's trying to do. The Psalms are better described as raw emotion laid bare. Raw emotion laid bare. Whenever you're reading through, the, through a psalm or the psalms as a whole, it's important to always remember to lean more towards feeling what the writer felt rather than doing what the writer did. Other than James, the New Testament letters all tend to have the same trajectory. Unveil a massive truth about the gospel and then give a command to live in a way that is consistent with that massive truth. But that's not what the psalms try to do or even seem to want to do. The psalmist instead... Invite us in to experiencing the hurt and the struggle, the, the joys and the celebrations, whichever God's people are experiencing at a, as a season. The Psalms invite us into experiencing that with them. And sometimes God's people are nailing things. It's rare. It doesn't happen all that often in the Old Testament if you're keeping score. But it happens. But then there are a lot of times that when God's people are a giant dumpster fire and nothing's going right. 
But either way, whether it's the healthy moment or it's the not healthy moment, the Psalms are always honest. They're incredibly honest. We live in a culture that, that tends to put a filter up to how we're really feeling about things. Psalms don't play that game. They're not even trying to play that game. Um, and because they're honest, man, I think the Psalms and the, the writers of the Psalms, they truly get us. Uh, we're, we're separated by two and a half thousand years, and yes, our cultures are very different in a number of obvious ways, but human nature still struggles with the same exact sin bentness as they did in the, the days of the garden. Right? And the, the sin brokenness of the world around us is just as broken as it was in Genesis chapter 3. And so regardless of the time and cultural distinctions between us, it's not really that hard to walk through the Psalms and feel like the Psalm writers are reading all of your mail, all right? Like, they, they, they get you. They experience the world just like we experience the world. And when they find themselves in a moment where they're able to articulate that experience and respond to that experience, they, they don't pass it through the same filter that we pass it through. We can't let anybody know the real us. We can't be that vulnerable. But the psalm writers, they, they don't seem to struggle with that. And that's why some of you actually adore the psalms. Because it gives voice to the kind of raw emotion that you feel like you can't say yourself, right? And uh, we're actually going to look at one of those raw moments this morning. It's an incredibly raw moment. Psalm 11. It's one of those where are you God kind of moments. Don't you see what's going on? Why haven't you stepped in yet kind of moments. But you've never had a moment like that, right? So for purely hypothetical, asking for a friend kind of reasons, let's look at it together. So we're going we're to start in the superscript here of Psalm 11. Uh, the presentation software that we use, it's, it, it's fancy. It does all kinds of, it's got all kinds of tricks that it does. What it, what it doesn't do, and I hate that it doesn't do, is it doesn't include the superscript in the text when it wants to show stuff on the screen. So I made a fancy, like slickly produced slide for you. Can I see it? That's not it. That's definitely not it. Anyways, I, I guess I put the wrong file in Dropbox. <laughs> Thanks for trying, Paul. All right, um, that, by the way, was our, uh, our table for our paying down our mortgage. We're ahead of pace, by the way. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. All right, so if you have a physical Bible, look at it. All right. Here's the subscript. Psalm 11, to the choir master of David. And if you didn't have a physical Bible, didn't have that in your lap, sorry. That's why the physical Bibles are nice, right? All right, short and sweet, to the choir master of David. Not much to it, but we can also, I think, learn some incredibly valuable stuff even about those two little lines, all right? So we'll take them in reverse order. Uh, we learn that, the, that David is the author of Psalm 11. Now, the odds were in his favor. He, he gets credit for about half of the Psalms, so it was likely that it was going to be one of his, uh, but it's good to lock that down, right? We're, we're, told, we're not told when in David's life uh, he wrote this psalm. Some of the, the psalms spell that out for us in the introduction, in the, the superscript that they have, but this is not one of those moments. We do know, however, based on what he's about to say, this is not a happy moment for David. He's about to launch into some stuff that he is very, very, very unhappy with. In fact, it's kind of a scary moment for David. Now, that doesn't, knowing David's life, it doesn't you know, narrow that down all incredibly too much. He had a lot of those moments. But we know it's not one of the fun times. 
The second thing we learn from the superscript is that it's, and I think it's just as important as who the author is, David addresses this psalm to somebody. Who is it? The choir master. If you're reading the King James this morning, to the chief musician. Um, if you're wondering who the choir master is, that was the person who was in charge of coordinating the musical worship for the congregation of Israel. So, so it'd be like JB, but on a national level. Hey, who thinks that JB would like to like lead the entire country in worship, but have to live in D.C.? <laughs> Love the first part. Hate the second part. All right, so... No, so what does any of this have to do with like, what we're about to read in, in the rest of this psalm? Well, it means that what's coming next is not merely the poetic thoughts of a songwriter that somebody thought was important to save back and maybe use one day. This song was written on purpose for a purpose. Some ancient songwriter had an artistic moment that... It wasn't just a random thought. No, this song is written expressly for the purpose of public worship among God's people. A songwriter is putting words in the mouth of the congregation. And in this case, it's the king himself. He's calling them to sing specific things as an act of worship so as to teach and shape what they believe about God and what they believe about themselves and what they believe about the world and how it works. And so, are you ready to look into the actual song? Well, let's go. Psalm 11, starting in verse 1, says, In the Lord I take refuge. And I already got to call time out. So I I know we haven't even gotten off the ground yet, uh, but this is important enough to stop and talk about it, right? Depending on your presuppositions uh, that you carry into the Bible about what the Bible is and how it should be read, about how uh, who God is and how God is allowed to be spoken to, you are either going to be greatly encouraged by the very first line of David's psalm, or you're going to be very, very frustrated and maybe even disturbed by it, all right? Why? Well, verses 1 through 3 are one giant run-on sentence. It's got eight different clauses in it. And so we're only technically one-eighth of the way through the first sentence of this song. But as I've already told you this morning, Psalm 11 is one of the sad ones. It's not one of the happy ones. In, you, in the Lord I take refuge. This is, not, this is not what you think it is. The very first part of the very first line is about as sarcastic as you can get. One-eighth of a line in David's song, written by the king for the nation of Israel to sing as a whole, David goes with sarcasm here. This is not David saying, in the Lord I take refuge. No, 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 no. This is David saying, in the Lord I take refuge. How do you feel about that? I'm guessing some people are actually deeply uncomfortable with the idea. And the tone, maybe. I get it. I feel like I am too sometimes. Like I said, there's no filter on the psalmists. Raw emotion laid bare. But again, you've never thought like David thought, right? Never had that sarcastic moment toward him? Neither have I. But we can confirm that this is David's tone because of what he says next. Look at it. In the Lord I take refuge. How can, speaking to the Lord, 
How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have lifted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. All right, so speaking directly to God, David expresses some doubt here about fleeing to God in the crisis moment. That's what's going on. How can you say... He sees that things are falling apart around him. He sees that his enemies are readying their weapons against him. And he starts to openly question whether or not it's good advice to run to the Lord in this moment. He paints the picture here of a bird that's in danger. I don't know if you've noticed this, but most birds, they're pretty helpless. They don't fight back. There's some scary birds out there, but most birds aren't that scary. All right, Their only recourse is to fly away. Fly away from danger, hopefully out of reach of the danger. Predators on the ground, bird flies up to the mountain for protection, for safety, or we could use David's word, for refuge. Could you imagine JB brought out a new song that he wanted everybody to learn? He wrote it himself. And the whole first verse was a true story about how he's not sure that God can be trusted when times are hard. Would that be awkward for us? I think it'd be awkward for us. Sitting there, listening to it for the first time, would you be waiting desperately for that happy resolution to finally come in the course? Yeah. The severity of David's problems are ramping up, up, and up, and his enemies are growing stronger and stronger, and he goes, God, where are you? Where are you? Why, why haven't you stepped in and stopped this yet? Where are you, God? Don't you see what's going on here? Because if you did, I think you would have stepped in by now. But where are you? How often have you frustratingly prayed something exactly like that? You know, hypothetically speaking. But David's not done with his eight-part run-on sentence. Look at verse 3. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David starts looking around, and he's beginning to get nervous, not, not just for himself, but for his people and for society at large. And I mean, I mean if, these, if these bad guys aren't stopped, if somebody doesn't step in, they'll tear everything apart, right? They're going to tear everything down. If, if God isn't stepping in now, an obvious question to ask is, if, is, if, is he capable or willing to step in at all? Or does he care? If God's not willing to step in in this moment... What can we lowly righteous people do in the face of such un, unchecked evil in the world? The foundations are destroyed. We've got no hope. If the crisis reaches all the way down to the foundations, then it'll be too late, right? Right? Surely you've never prayed that prayer before. Especially not during election season. That would never happen, right? So feel the weightiness of David's plea in this moment. Brutally honest, sarcastic, starting to lose hope, beginning to call into question the goodness of everything that God is and has promised. Last week we talked about how just like adults, kid des- kids, they desperately need to see how the Bible deals with the sad moments in their life. Because without those examples and without that instruction, they're left to navigate those, uh, that sad moment without God's good tools and gifts for his people right but the bible includes far more than just happy moments and sad moments it also includes a really really long list of throw up your hands in the air and on the verge of giving up moments 
You ever come across those in your reading? There's a lot of them there. And I think in His goodness, God has given us some examples and instruction for that too. And this is one of those instances where presuppositions end up mattering an awful lot whenever we're reading the Scriptures. If, if you approach the Bible carrying the assumption that what David does here is not allowed, all right? It's like, whoa, 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 you, you can't talk to God like that. You can't speak to God with any edge of critique in your tone. Who do you think you are? You don't get to show the cracks that are beginning to form in your trust in Him because, I mean, if you show the cracks, then that means that your faith is weak. And if your faith is weak, that means you won't have access to the things that you want, right? Isn't that how the math works? If you carry that assumption into your reading of Psalm 11, you either, you either have to accuse David of wrongdoing here, flying off the handle in an unchecked moment, or... You have to explain his tone away as something other than what's clearly written on the page. Something that, other than a, other than a frustrated peek behind the curtain of David's heart and, and the practicalities of his trust in God. How does that work in the real world? Well, David, let, David lets us see, right? To continue arguing that this is somehow out of bounds, I think you also have to double down and Continue lying to yourself and to everybody else about what's often hiding behind the curtain of your own heart. I'd argue, it's just been my experience, but I'd argue that we tend to make a bigger mess of the growing problems around us because we try to shore up our outward appearance of steadfastness rather than taking our cracking faith directly to God. David's not playing games here. He runs, even in his sarcasm, to the only one who can help him. Rather than leaning into the examples and instruction that God has already given us, we try to hide and pretend that we got it put together. So what does David do? What does he do when fear and doubt begin to creep back in? What does he do when he finds it hard to trust that the Lord is actually truly good? Well, he gives the answer in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. All right, so just like chew on that for a second. Massive thing David just said. The Lord is in his holy temple. David, in verse 3, David asks a question. What can the righteous do? All right? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But then he turns on a dime in verse 4 and immediately gives an answer. He points to God. But he doesn't, listen, he doesn't point to God as someone who is full of character and can be trusted. That's what we talked about last week. All right? There are other times when David says, look at who God is. Look at, look at how many times he's fulfilled his promises. God, that was a good and right thing to do last week. When you're sad, you need to see God is as near. And you need to see that he, is genuinely, that he genuinely cares for you. Those are important realities. They're massively important. Uh, they're truths that change the way you see yourself and see the world. But that's not what David points to here in Psalm 11. That's not what David points to when he's frustrated and tempted to give up. That's not what he points to when he feels like his enemies are growing too strong too fast. No, this time, no, this time David points to God as the unchallenged king of glory. 
the unchallenged king of glory. Oh, oh, our enemies seem to never lose and they're working their way all the way down to the foundations. Oh, it feels like nothing is ever going to be right ever again and that the whole world is now in upheaval. Oh, it feels like the powerless, uh, that we're powerless to fight back uh, against the evil empires of the world. Yeah, listen, maybe we are. Maybe that's true. Uh, maybe, maybe the foundations are about to get wrecked. Maybe things truly are falling apart in an irreparable way. But then David remembers that there is a bigger and far more eternal kingdom that all the empires of this world are subservient to. And will one day have to stand and give an account to its eternal king. It doesn't matter what part of David's life this psalm is writing in. The temple is something that doesn't exist yet. It says the Lord is in his holy temple, right? That comes after David is dead. His son Solomon built the temple. And so he's not talking about a physical place on earth here, but the location that God dwells eternally, the heavenly throne room, right? A couple hundred years later, a prophet Isaiah is going to give a, be given a vision of this same throne room uh, and what it looks like. But he doesn't, he doesn't focus at all on you know, the, the structure of the temple or the, the decorations. He has no idea what color the drapes are in the temple. No, Isaiah's vision is overwhelmed by the presence of God seated on his throne in all of his majesty. And he gives half a moment to describing some angels that exist for the sole purpose of worshiping God 24-7, right? And they shout across to each other, holy, 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 right? And in that vision, in that vision, Isaiah, a man who probably stood a mile taller morally than all of his neighbors, right? He was the guy in Israel who was still trying to be righteous when no one else cared. Morally nice guy Isaiah hits the deck the second he encounters God seated upon his throne. Why? Because in that second, Isaiah immediately understands that morally nice compared to your neighbors ain't good enough. When you encounter the infinite holiness of God, you realize your place. That's the picture that David is pointing to. Drive out of your head all your man-made caricatures that you have about kings in their courts. They're comedy. They're soap operas. No, this is the kind of king that we're talking about here. Is the kind of king that heaven and earth quakes at the sound of the worship that rightly belongs to him. We're talking about a king that naturally elicits relatively righteous men to fall down before him in dread because they dared to enter into his presence in the wrong manner. Now, it's been my personal experience. At least it's what I've seen with my own eyes. It's been my personal experience that hearing that God seated upon his throne in this way always serves as a core level watershed moment in a lot of people's hearts, or in everybody's heart, really. It always causes people to respond in one or two very clear directions. For many, for many, the knee-jerk response is negative. The idea of hearing that God is seated upon his throne, that drives them mad, all right? And they respond with anger or anxiety over such news. The idea that God has forever and will forever reign as Lord of all feels to them like an attack on their own sovereign autonomy. It's a shot across the bow of a battle they don't think that they should have to fight. 
Just a few psalms before this one, the author of Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The simple truth is that people who believe themselves to be kings don't like it too much when they discover that there's a king out there who has more authority and power than they do. It tends to prick them a little bit. And whether those those people who believe their kings are actually kings or physical kingdoms or just self-proclaimed kings in their own little lives and destinies. But anger and anxiety are not the only option for the watershed. There are others who hear the news that God is seated forever on his throne and their knee-jerk response is positive. They experience relief and rest at the sound of that announcement. The idea that God has forever and will forever reign as Lord of all feels to them like a promise that all the wrongs in this world will finally and surely be made right one day. It's a shot across the bow of a battle they desperately hope someone will fight on their behalf. Right after Psalm 2, David is identified as the author of Psalm 3. He says this, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The simple truth is that those who have already, who have already laid down their man-made crowns and have submitted themselves to this eternal king, they are comforted by remembering that despite the raging of the nations around them, the true king is forever undaunted. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God has never failed and will never fail to see injustice done to you, around you, or by you. He's never not seen it. Most commentators, uh, at least the ones I have access to, stay away from trying to address the whole God seeing with his eyelids thing. That sounds kind of weird. I don't know how that works. Uh, definitely sounds funny. Uh, the Hebrew is pretty clear there. We're, we're pretty sure it's talking about eyelids, the folds of skin over the eyes, the literal, literal way to translate that Hebrew word. All right, so there's no reason to think that it's any kind of corruption of the text um, on that one. And so I'm not really sure what David means by it, but he could, could is the word. He could mean that God sees even when you think he's blinking. There's never been a moment where injustice has slipped past him because he somehow missed it and wasn't paying attention. We, you and I, we fail every, to see everything around us. We, we usually fail to comprehend or almost always fail to comprehend the motives involved too. There's never been a moment. Eternity past or eternity come. There's never been a moment when God did not see all the angles and did not understand all the motives. Period. But verse 5 defines for us how God is actually measuring what he sees. Did you catch it? First, we see that we're told that he tests the righteous. You've got to think back to James here, right? Very first part of James, James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Both James and David argue here that the overwhelming moments in your heart and life are not purposeless. They are actively being used by God to create good and necessary things in you. But that testing is for the righteous, those who belong to him, those who are citizens of this eternal kingdom. 
David tells us next that God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. How many of y'all think that that sentence can just stand all on its own in our culture without me having to explain it? Here's the obvious question for a lot of folks. Is God allowed to hate? Is God allowed to hate people? Feels like something a good God maybe wouldn't do. The instinct here is for a lot of folks to jump in and say, oh, no, 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 God, God hates the sin, not the sinner. But that's not what David said. That's not what David said. I mean, it sounds nice, it sounds incredibly polite, but that's not what David said. Last week we looked at the false dichotomy that a lot of people have uh, when, when it comes to the biblical definitions of the fear of the Lord and pleasure. Those two things are seen as you know, in conflict with each other, uh, always at odds with each other, but the Bible doesn't see them in that manner. We said that a right and sober understanding of who God is ought to produce a healthy and reverent fear in us. Uh, but then also a right understanding of who God is allows us to be rightly lost in the beauty of his goodness. According to the Bible, a properly defined fear of the Lord is what opens the door for people to experience supreme pleasure that can only ever be found in rightly knowing and relating to God. This week, we get a new false dichotomy. Instead of between the fear of the Lord and pleasure, it's between God's love and God's hatred. I don't, I don't have as long to talk about that disconnect as I did last week, so I've got I to move quick, but here's the general idea is precisely the infinite love of God that produces a righteous hate for that which threatens to destroy the beloved. I'll say that again because it, it, it's massive, all right? It is precisely the infinite love of God <clears throat> that produces a righteous hatred for that which threatens to destroy the beloved. We talked at length in this room about the Bible's definition of love and how it's pretty much the exact opposite of what our culture tries to like just like run out the door uh, for its definition. Uh, biblical love doesn't shrink back whenever danger arrives. All right? It engages. It engages. It steps in. Oftentimes at great cost to itself, it steps in to protect and to provide. To sit there and watch the one you love be uh, manipulated and molested. To claim an inability to act on that part because you, know, you don't want to come off as the wrong kind of jealous. That's not love. That's selfishness. It's self-protection. Every single dad in this room has run the thought experiment in their head of what kind of damage they would be willing to do if some bad actor tried to harm their family. Don't act like you haven't. We've all, been, we've all done it, right, gentlemen? The instinct, it comes from a righteous place. The problem, the problem is that it gets filtered through our sin-bent hearts and then fleshed out through our sin-bent actions. The problem is not the instinct. The problem is what we do with that instinct. Are we capable of getting our knee-jerk sense of justice wrong? Absolutely, 100%, yes. In fact, most of the time, that's absolutely true. What we usually do. Why? Because unlike God, we don't see all the angles, and we don't know all of the motives. Also, because our response, whether it's a real response or an imaginary response, is almost never proportional with perfect justice. But God doesn't struggle with those insufficiencies. He's not... He's not weighed down by the sin-bentness. He carries both a, the perfect understanding of justice and the perfect authority to pursue justice on the behalf of others. 
And so hate towards the wicked is always going to be skewed uh, in a self-serving way whenever it's coming out of our hearts. And that's why it's wrong. But that's not true for God. His hatred is not only perfectly righteous, but also 100% deserved by those who are on the receiving end of it. There's never someone who has received hate from God that was not owed, rightly so, hate from God. And so it would probably serve us well to more clearly define what David means by the wicked and lovers of violence. It's pretty simple. The wicked are those who willingly, openly, and enthusiastically reject God and his reign over them. Those who love violence are those who define their lives by the harming of others for personal gain. We think either those two are the nice guys in the story. So how should, how should the good king see and treat those two categories of rebels? I mean, should he treat them as nothing more than some kind of ragtag group that's just causing minor skirmishes over here? Probably should be ignored. Or should the king uphold the integrity of his kingdom by upholding the integrity of his laws? It's the latter, right? See, here's the truth I've learned about all people everywhere, myself included. Everyone loves, absolutely adores the idea of the bad guys coming to justice. That's why we have so many really terrible police drama shows on TV. We all love the bad guys coming to justice. But here's the second thing I've learned about all people everywhere, myself included. Everyone is thoroughly convinced that they're not one of the bad guys. I'm not, surely. Haven't you seen me? (laughs) Do you know my neighbor? He's a jerk. So how does God bring justice to those who deserve justice? How does he right all of those wrongs? Well, David pleads with God to take that a very specific action on them in verse 6. He says, let him rain coals on the wicked. <coughs> Excuse me. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be their, the portion of their cup. Well, what a pleasant thought. If you look at the different English translations that are available to us, uh, there's some debate over how to translate uh, one of the words here, the word coals. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's the word pa, all right? Um, A lot of translations, like the ESV that we're using this morning, uh, they take their cue of how to translate that word from the fire and sulfur line coming underneath it. And so uh, we have pretty good reason to try and tie those two thoughts together, right? Um, That definitely doesn't not make sense. It kind of does make sense. But I think there's probably a better reason to translate pa in a different way. All right? The King James and an older uh, version of the New American Standard, they both translate pa as snares or traps. Let the Lord rain snares upon the wicked. Instead of taking their cue from the next line, the, the translators, uh, those translators, they argue that David is actually calling all the way back to verse 1. Remember the bird line? Flee like a bird to the mountain. And so the picture he's painting here is of a God as the final bird hunter snaring the wicked in the end. And you may be thinking, well, that sounds a lot, that doesn't sound as bad as raining coal, so I'll take that option. Sounds like a much more pleasant experience. Don't forget that fire and sulfur are absolutely coming next. And knowing David, knowing his audience, it is a high likelihood that David is hinting at a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of call to action here, right? A literal act of God's wrath raining down upon the wicked. 
Even if he's not, like, even if he's just using some metaphorical picture to some other kind of judgment, they're not exactly describing a happy moment, right? He's not inviting them to a party. There's been a recent push in the last about 150-ish years uh, in church history uh, to try to describe away uh, things that feel repugnant to people, especially the doctrine of hell. Um, And to make their point, people in that group will usually uh, point to things and argue, uh, well, well, you know, many of the pictures and depictions that we have of hell in the Bible are using metaphor, right? And the person speaking is often uh, pointing to a literal, physical place as an analogy to describe hell. And as an example, they'll often point to Jesus uh, declare, uh, describing hell as Gehenna, uh, which in, was a literal place, a real-life trash heap outside the city of Jerusalem that smoldered and stank all day. He, he pointed to that and said, you know, hell's like that, right? And they say, see, 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 it's an analogy. But to do that, you have to forget how analogies work right? Analogies exist. Like the whole reason they're a thing is because you're looking to explain something that people can't wrap their heads around by pointing to something they can see that they can wrap their heads around, right? That's what an analogy is. Otherwise, you just explain the thing. And so even if all the analogous and metaphorical pictures of hell in the Bible fell short of accurately describing it, which direction do you think they fall short? (laughs) They're not overstating their case. If anything, they're understating their case. If anything, that means that hell is actually way worse than the descriptions that we have of it. If all it is is analogy, that means we ought to fear it even more than what the pictures meant if they were literal. And so David points to some language that every faithful Israelite would have immediately loaded with meaning. All right? They've got, they've got a promise of a future judgment coming down the pipe, but they've also got a couple of stories in their back pocket where God showed up, stepped into the world, and did exactly these actions against some wicked people. It's in their history. They tell that story to their kids to warn them. And David's call is, Lord, would you do that again soon? Oh God, would you step in again? And whether, whether that enacting of divine justice comes sooner or later, David trusts that it's certainly coming. He deeply understands that there is only one finish line for the wicked. That finish line may be today or it may be generations from now, but it is the finish line. And the promised So even as the crises continue to swirl around David, and even as David's enemies grow stronger and stronger and creep closer and closer, David knows that vindication is coming. He's he's confident that vindication is coming. And the certainty of that vindication allows him to catch his breath a little bit. It allows him to regain his trust even when the immediate circumstances swirling around him seem to be leading to injustice. But vindication for those on the receiving end of injustice is not the finish line for the righteous. Look at verse 7. That may be the finish line for the wicked, but it's not the finish line for the righteous. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his what? His face. 
Church, we can and we should aim for righteousness before the Lord. That is good and it is a blessing upon your life. But church, just like David last week, the, righteous that God, the righteousness that God requires is out of our reach. It is out of our reach. We all love to see the bad guys finally come to justice, but no one ever believes that they're one of the bad guys. Newsflash. You is one of the bad guys. But if the Bible teaches us anything clearly at all, it's this, is that we that have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that falling short, the, the wages of sin, the thing properly owed to sinners for sin is death. So if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, the Bible's pretty clear. You're one of the bad guys in God's story. We all like to believe that we're the hero of our own story. No, we're actually one of the bad guys in God's story. That's a fun little day. Don't worry too much, though. So, so was I. So was every Christian on the planet before they met Jesus. So what else do you need to know? The Bible teaches that God loves his enemies in a remarkable way. We may, be, we may rightly earn the punishment due to the wicked and, to, and those who love violence that may belong to us as our natural, obvious reward. But God is just as full of mercy towards the grace-fueled, repentant sinner as he is full of righteous wrath towards the unrepentant wicked. He is just as full of grace, just as full of mercy. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that I can't live and you can't live and none of us are capable of living. And that means that he came to be righteous on our behalf. And as a perfectly righteous, spotless lamb. He died on the cross as a sacrifice to make full and final payment for your sin. And he rose again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that this morning. You can turn away from your sin and you can turn to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I'd love to be helpful to you. I'd love to be helpful to you. If you want somebody to talk to, I'll, I'll be down front if you want to talk. But is it just escaping the punishment of, of sin that's on the table here? Not at all. For those who know him and have been reconciled to him, the upright, he calls them here, we shall see his face. If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is Every single week, we repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think that response ought to take the shape of bringing our frustrated hands down out of the air a little bit. Not because God isn't big enough to handle our critique. He's big enough. And not because we need to hide our true selves behind some curtain of feigned trust. But because like David, we are quite often prone to forgetting who is actually seated upon the throne of heaven. We forget all too easily that the things we're often worried mean certain doom for everyone and ourselves usually don't have eternity in view. Or is that just me? Definitely just me. Church, we're aiming for a day when we will finally get to see his face. Are, are there minor battles that we need to busy ourselves with until that day gets here? Yes, absolutely. Yes, but how we fight those battles will tip our cards into what it, towards what, it, what we actually put our hope in. They'll rip the lid off of and reveal what it is we believe is our greatest prize. As, as the crises swell and as the enemies converge, 
Do you trust that the Lord is in his temple? Do you trust that he's seated upon the throne? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. It's a time that we put aside each week to give you space to respond, uh, translate the head knowledge into something better and more practical than that. I'll be down front if you want to talk. But maybe you're here and you need to respond in some other kind of way this week. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family. We can talk about that. Or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Maybe you've been following Jesus, but you haven't done what he said to do yet. Let's fix that. Or maybe it's time to finally say yes to taking the gospel to somewhere far away from here that doesn't know it yet. That sounds like a good thing to do too. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 11. Thank you for an example of sarcastic frustration. Man, David gets me. Thank you that you are the God, or or God who is not, not undone by my insufficiencies and my failure to trust or even my sometimes slightly sin-bent critique. You are good. You are high and exalted. And my frustration has never removed you from your throne. The enemies, whether real or imaginary, that swirl about me have never gotten close to removing you either. Would you remind us of who you are and where you are? what you promised to do. Not not because the battles here don't matter, but man, they sure do look different. They sure do matter a little less. Forgive us where we fail in this, myself especially. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see and ears to hear this morning? Would you call men and women into your kingdom? Maybe... Maybe even giving them one of those Isaiah-like visions of your heavenly throne room. I don't know. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.